I used to hate my dad, too. Yeah? He left when I was 10, but the best thing I ever did was give him a second chance. We got to be the best of friends, and although I may never see him again, I miss him. And I know he feels the same. My dad didn't leave when I was 10. I I was a baby. I never knew him, and I don't want to. It's not happening. That was Luke's attitude, too. What? In Empire, Luke found out Vader was his father, but instead of putting away his lightsaber and talking about it, he overreacted and got his hand cut off. I mean, they worked it out eventually, but at what cost? Another Death Star was destroyed, Boba Fett got eaten by the Sarlacc, and we got the Ewoks. It all could have been avoided if they just, you know, communicated. And let's face it, the Ewoks suck, dude. Welcome to Tessa Watches Lost, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast. We still have this podcast? I know. We took a bit of an impromptu break. Where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is Tessa. This week, we're talking more time travel shenanigans in the late fifth season episodes Dead is Dead and some Like It Hoth. Continuing our chronological unfurling of these episodes, we're going to start in what I will call the past past. Time travel's weird, y'all. The past past, the past present, the past future, the past that's the future. No, no, no. You're right. It is the past past and the past present, but it's also the present past. See? I'm telling you. No participles. Speaking of Star Wars, let's begin in 1977. Oh, God. Well, 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 look who rode in on his high horse. It's Charles Whitmore. That's really it. Charles Whitmore was in charge of the others. How does this make you feel? This was interesting because we get a lot of it through Ben's perspective. So it's mostly looking, getting a glimpse of the hierarchy of the others before Charles was kicked off the island, question mark? It's interesting that Richard seems to defer to Charles in a lot of ways. Because, yeah, we get young Charles and we get old Charles. But it's just so weird because in some situations it really feels like Richard is the leader. Especially when we've seen him before. Back, you remember, in the 50s, I think, when they went back and there was the bomb and all that stuff. But then, like, is... Jughead. Yeah, Jughead. Is Ellie in charge? Is Ellie in charge? Is Charles in charge? Do they take turns? Is this, like, an underworld situation where, like, only one of the three can be alive at any given time and, like, in charge? You get what I'm saying. Tessa is, in fact, too young to realize she made a funny when she, when she said Charles in charge. He is, in fact, in charge of our days and our nights. Oh, my God. How invested are you, generally speaking, in this whole Ben, Richard, Charles, Jacob, Island Oh, I'm so situation? invested. Really? Okay. Yeah, no, I really want to know. Is this, is this more... In- Is this this more interesting than Dharma? This, I don't know. So this season's been really good. I actually told you this the other day, is that I've really been enjoying this season. I think that I'm more interested in this because it is so mysterious, but also because 
like, I just want to know how this works. Like, because they were clearly waiting for someone and that someone could have been John, but it could have been someone else. Like, I yeah. I genuinely want to know what is going on with the society and how they make the decisions they make. Why are they there? It, it's just, it's so interesting because every time you see something and you're like, okay, this is how it is. The next time we see it, it's different. Right. I, I'm really interested in seeing how when this is revealed, when this is explained, which it is, that seeing how you react to it. Because even though my, as you know, my big issue with the last season is how all of these threads are either abandoned or attempted to be tied together or whatever, I really find where we go with this interesting. I do. I like it. Okay. I just don't like the way that it ties into the overall arc, which makes me wonder at what point did they know what the conclusion of this this piece of storytelling is? And yeah, so that's that's all I'll say about that. But the other thing to take away from this time period is that Ben doesn't remember that Saeed shot him which is super convenient for plot reasons. I am so confused by this. Is this a loop? Is it Right. Is this real life? Is it just fantasy? Like I right. I don't I don't understand. Did they go into a parallel universe and so the Ben of the the Ben that we know in the future is not tied to the past that they're in? Right. You know, the the premise of the beginning with the broken donkey wheel is that time was broken and that's why the flashes occurred. Once that wheel is put right, the flashes end, and we have these people who are misplaced in time, ostensibly creating a time travel narrative. But if you look at this as a time travel narrative, it's terrible. Right. Because the... Uh, I mean, I guess he could just not remember. Well, yeah. I mean, it's possible, but... And I mean, that's something if it were just by itself, you know, and it's a detail but you know these these things start to add up and it really makes you wonder how much Lindelof and Cuse team Darlton if you will really were interested in telling a time travel story which I think is really more in line with the the overall arc of this show we're gonna tell some stories some of which we're interested in and some of which we're not but we have to tell because otherwise the ones we want to tell won't make sense which doesn't seem like a great way to do a puzzle box show, but this is where we are. Well, okay. So when it comes to time travel narratives, there is a certain precedent for the idea that you can experience something in your youth that is actually time travel related, but not remember it until it happens to you later. Because this happens in 12 Monkeys, right? Right. Not to spoil 12 Monkeys for anyone, but like the idea that at the beginning of the film, we see from the young protagonist's perspective, a man getting shot at the airport. And then we realize at the end of the film that that was him getting shot at the airport. But there's, but at no point does he look into a mirror as an older person and think, man, that looks a lot like the guy who I saw shot right. at the airport. Because there's just no frame of reference for that happening, right? In that right. young person's life. This is what happens when we... we do a time travel trope, which is right. that time tries to protect itself. Like, you know, time is sentient and it will do what it needs to do. Right. But then there's also, it doesn't even have to be sentient, just the idea of like time 
like wanting to be a certain way. Right. Um, and it doesn't have to be necessarily that it is aware of itself, just that it wants to be that way. It, it fills that hole or whatever. But we also get a little bit of this in Lost because Charlotte, remember, as she's dying, tells Daniel, I think that guy, that crazy guy I experienced when I was younger who told me never to come back here was you. And she didn't realize it until she was dying. Like she met Daniel when she was younger. Right. And then met him again and spent a lot of time with him and fell in love with him before she realized that it was him when she was younger. So there is also a sense that it's not just time trying to protect itself, but like that memory is fickle, that it's weird and that it doesn't unless you believe time travel is possible and you are specifically looking for things that are happening. You're not going to remember these things. Speaking of Daniel. Yeah. Ooh, Daniel's back. And we'll get to this because, you know, at the end of the last episode, we see him coming off of the submarine. So I wonder if we're going to get to see some of these Charlotte. Faraday interaction. Or did they already happen, though? We'll see. Also. Okay. Before we get to any of that, let's time travel to another great year for time travel in pop culture. I'm talking about 1985, Back to the Future. But we're not going to actually talk about Back to the Future (laughs) because it doesn't come up in the episode. This flashback is a Miles flashback. This is where we get to see Miles and his mom moving into the apartment complex And realizing, to quote a movie that did not come out in 1985, holy sixth sense, Batman. That wasn't a quote so much as a... Can you imagine how horrifying this would be? This is like graveyard book material. Right. Like, kid hangs out with ghosts. His best friends are dead people. Right. And I mean, that's really all. That's it. It, It's a short, short... it's, It's akin to the flashbacks in the earlier seasons, but it's interesting, and we'll talk more about the things that happened in this second episode, the Miles episode, some like it Hoth. But it's interesting every time we see that Miles really does have this ability. Like, this is real. Lost is telling us that people like Miles exist, people with paranormal talent. It's real, it's real, and it's real. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's like... I mean, we're going to get to why here in a minute. And I was I'm so happy that I was right in my guess. I'm so rarely right in my guesses that I'm so happy when I am right. But it is interesting from the perspective of Miles. It is actually important to Miles as a character to know that he's had this ability since she was a child, because we realize that he I mean, this has been obvious since his inner character. This has been obvious since his character was introduced, but it becomes more obvious in this episode. He has a lot of empathy for the dead. He does. Um, he speaks about them in a way that is not dismissive. He listens to them tell their story of how they died, right? He tries to make sense of it. He tries to resolve things for them. I mean, yeah, he does get paid to do that. And. There's other stuff that's going on that we'll talk about. But the point is, is that I think it is actually important that he grew up with this ability and he sees the dead as people who are worthy of talking to. Right. Right. Before we get back to that, let's stop in in 1988. Meanwhile, back on the island, Ben and young Ethan kidnap baby Alex. This was so... Weird. I mean, you know that it happened. But now we get to see it. We get to see it. Ethan was always a D. 
dick <laughs> is what we've learned uh, from this, this is, experience. This is helpful, yes. Yeah, it well, we also learned that like Ben kidnapped her. He was supposed to kill them both, but he kidnapped the baby and like warned Rousseau off. That's interesting to me, considering that in the past, and by the past I mean earlier in the show, the modus operandi of the others was to kidnap children. Right. And so it does seem like this was a Ben invention. If we're going to place this in the mosaic that is, what is the mythology of the others? Right. And so when he gets back, Charles, who we found out is in charge, is mad. But we also find out in this moment in 1988 that Jacob loves Ben so Charles can suck it. Yeah. So, I mean, that that deepens the whole, you know, and, and knowing now that Jacob loves Locke so Ben can suck it, this is an interesting moment. It's very, it's very Sith, right? Jacob is sort of a fickle mistress, isn't he? He's, he's the Sith Lord. Yeah. And actually also, I, I like the Star Wars connection because obviously we're going to talk about Star Wars, but I also kind of think you? this seems like a very fucked up Jesus and his disciples situation too because like there is this sense in the in the bible because every time they mention john in the bible john is his favorite john is his the one that jesus loves he's the one who's basically sitting on his lap in the in the last supper which brings up a whole like other conversation we can have about jesus and his relationship with the disciples but that's a whole other thing but like this seems almost like jacob's like pitting them against each other which is very sith right and and as I said, we're going to see more of this play out in the final episodes of this season and into the final season. We have two places to stop in the probably mid to late 90s or early 2000s. Our first stop is Miles with his mom while she's dying. This is the conversation where Miles says, where's my dad? And she says, somewhere you can never go, which is the title of an anti-Keen song. <laughs> in an alternate universe. Right. Maybe even the universe where they are in the 70s. Can Ooh. you think about that? Yeah. If we're seeing that this is a parallel situation, right. maybe in that universe, Keen right. wrote a song called Somewhere Neither of Us Can Go. Right. This is Miles having to confront death in the quote-unquote normal way. And of course, laying out the plot for the rest of the episode, which is dad's on the island. We actually already know who he is, right? So, I mean, that's that's what this is useful for. I was right. But also, I, I actually thought it was really funny that she was like, you'll never be able to find him. And I'm like, well, you didn't count on time travel, did you, mom? You did not. Our second stop. Why did you think about that? Our, our second stop is back on the island. This little three-act drama reaches its conclusion Whitmore is exiled, and he tells Ben in a, in, in a conclusion that we already know is true. One day, you'll have to choose between Alex and the island. What did you think about this day brewing? Day brewing. You know, you'll rue the day. Oh. Day brewing. Rue the day. Yeah, so a lot of rue this episode, because this is the Ben episode. So we get a Ben we're not, episode. We're not making a rue. Right. We're ruing. Would Alex be the flower in this situation or the cream? Please don't. So we have a Ben episode and a Miles episode. In the Ben episode, it's very much about him 
It's about fathers and children in both episodes. One is from the perspective of the father. The other is from the perspective of the child. Gross. Fun, isn't it? No. <laughs> That's in the cradle and the silver spoon. So, well, and if you want to make it more gross. When you come in home, dad, I don't know when. But we'll We'll be together together then. then. If you want to make it more gross, the child is dead. More gross than what I just did. The child is dead in the first one and the father is dead in the second one. (laughs) Anyway, um, so... The Ben thing is interesting because I was a little afraid. I was, if you remember, if you recall, dear listeners, I was very angry about the resolution to, or lack thereof, to the Alex Rousseau, whatever that kid's name was, I did not care, storyline. But, like, this is interesting, like, bringing it back and actually talking about Ben being forced to confront his own decisions. Because he actually, and he actually talks about it that way. He says, I have to go back to the island to be judged. And so there is this like you'll rue the day unning. I like this, the day ruing of Charles because we know that Ben has also threatened Charles's daughter. Mm-hmm. And Charles originally threatened Ben's daughter. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of parallels going on here. All sorts of threats. Yeah. It it is an interesting way of talking about Ben's relationship with Alex and is it more important than his relationship with the island? And the answer is no, but then we also get the island sort of providing him a way of resolving that relationship. Yeah. It's interesting. Back to Miles. In 2004, we have a very fun guest star appearance. Dean Norris from... Under the Dome, just kidding, Breaking Bad. He wasn't Under the Dome, though. That was his big, big move after Breaking Bad. It's very sad. But before all of that, he played a one-off character named Howard Gray. Howard Gray is employing Miles, and Miles is unable to tell Howard what he wants, so he makes something up. And that's all there is to say about that until Naomi... In the worst wig ever. Oh, of all time. Worst we've seen wig some ever. we have seen some bad wigs on this show. This is the worst. This wins the award for worst wig. I do not want to see a worse wig than this one. But Naomi approaches in the worst wig ever, approaches Miles and says one point six million dollars to acquire his services. And he responds, When do we leave? I like how he's like, You can't pay me enough. She's like, Is this enough? And he's like Where's yes. the boat? <laughs> yes. And then and then what subsequently happens after that is in a moment of honesty driven by whatever, Miles goes back to Howard and apologizes and tells him he was just making something up. And Howard said, why did you have to tell me? Why couldn't you have just lied? I, I, you, you took this from me. You took, I had something and you took it away from me. But that's not the important part of this, this time, Tessa. I know... That you really want to talk about the fact, not not about Howard Gray, whatever. We can come back to him if you want. But the really important part of what happens here is that after Naomi approaches him, the other side approaches him. Bram, a character named Bram approaches him and says, don't go with the Widmore people. And Miles says no for a couple of reasons. And one reason is a fish taco. Okay, so I have lots to say both about Howard Gray and this fish taco. So, one, not to quote someone who's awful, 
But there is a moment in the director's commentary of the Avengers where somebody apparently asked Joss Whedon, why is Tony still mad at Steve for being his dad's favorite? When didn't we resolve all this dad stuff in Iron Man 2? And the answer to that, of course, is it doesn't matter. When you're an adult, you can resolve your parent issues, but it doesn't ultimately affect the way that you feel like you were treated as a child. Right? That's the same thing with Miles here. When he tells, right. when he, what he says to Howard Gray is, it doesn't matter whether your son knew or not. Like, you, ha- you should have told him while he was alive. Right. That it doesn't make up for it isn't now. It, isn't it funny that when Miles is no longer dependent on Howard's money, because he just got offered $1.6 million, yeah. he goes and tells this guy what he really thinks? Yeah, Miles is very mercenary, but yeah, right. he does still have feelings, which I think is kind of the point of this. Which brings us to the fish taco. Right, so the fish taco. So I, I think I remember telling you... We were you, so bent out of shape I was so bent this. out of shape, because like, who orders one fish taco to which I responded. I don't think he ordered just one. I think, you know, sometimes and we saw this on the bear when they were talking about donuts. Yeah. And, and biting the donut. When you order a taco, you don't just order one taco because that first taco is just hunger satiating. Right. The second taco is the one you're going to enjoy. It's the one you're going to savor. And that's the one. That, gets, that Bram takes away. That bites it. Yeah. So like I, I accept your I accept your explanation. He gobbled down that first taco while he was still in the store. He was leaving. The second taco was, as we call, a walking taco. It's the taco that you eat while you're walking away. And Bram Coming soon from AMC. Kills the walking, the walking taco. taco. <laughs> Followed by a spinoff called Fear the Walking Taco. <laughs> Followed by another spinoff starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And Hillary Burton. You wish. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, obviously, the tragedy is, of course, the loss of the taco in this scene. But what we do get from this scene, because I don't think that Bram and his crew work for Ben. I think they are a wholly third party. because, And that's what he seems to imply, is that he's like, we don't work for Widmore. We don't work for any of them. But if you come with us, we'll explain what happened. Like, who you are. And what's going on? And of course, Miles says no, because he's mercenary and they're not going to pay him. Like, he's like, will you pay me more than what they're paying me? And Bram's like, we're not going to pay you anything. What do you think this is? What do you think we are made of money? He doesn't say that, but that's kind of the tone of what's going on. But like, it, it is very much like, I, I think that this group here is a, it'd be interesting if they were also paranormal kids. Like, if this was, like, a, a Scooby gang situation. Maybe we'll find out. I don't know. Still owe him a fish taco, though. So let's go back to Ben now. Okay. In 2007, our final stop in the past past. We've seen the before this, and we've seen the after this. Now we are seeing the this this. Ben is going to kill Penny. And the reason he is so roughed up when he comes back to get on the plane... Is Desmond hit him with a flying tackle? Desmond beat the shit out of him. And I am so proud of Desmond in this moment. Like, first of all, okay, so a couple of things. One, I'm so glad that Penny was not harmed. (laughs) Two, it's interesting that Ben did not harm her when he realized that they had a child together. This is what the whole, this ties the whole fish taco, as it were, together. 
Because the idea is... tie a fish taco together. Well, you know, it's like the ingredient. It's like the salsa that brings oh. all, of the, all um, of the different flavors, ties them right together. The point is, is that Penny and Desmond's child is the salsa that ties the whole fish taco together. Because you get Ben's feelings about Alex, which are not resolved at this point, are brought up by the sight of this child. Because he's like, I can't kill... Penny and leave this child motherless when I fucked up my own child, right? I I wasn't there for my child. I'm not going to take away this other per- this other child's parent as well. Big big Daniel Plainview energy from there will be blood. So I have to ask you, Sam. Yes, you have said words to this effect before, and this is what mm-hmm. I thought of when Desmond shows up, mm-hmm. finds Ben with a gun mm-hmm. near Penny. Mm-hmm. Just he's not even pointing it at mm-hmm. Penny at this yep. point. He's just mm-hmm. near Penny mm-hmm. and his mm-hmm. child. Yep. You have you have said before mm-hmm. that if somebody yep. had a gun near me. Yep, I have said this. What What were your words? Well, at, at this point, we have forty three years of rage that have yet to come out. Woe be it unto the person who threatens to do you harm, because they will feel all of it. They will feel it everywhere, all at once. And that is, I think, what's happening with Desmond. Penny couldn't, it, couldn't it happen to a better guy. Penny too. is Desmond's person. That's right. And and that's the whole that's mm-hmm. the whole point of their yep. story. Yep. She's the constant. Yep. He keeps fucking it up, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And he's finally got it. And he's mm-hmm. finally not fucking it up. They are meant to be together. Yeah, they are. God told him. That's right. And Ben vaguely threatened it. Let no man <laughs> tear that asunder. Exactly. So Desmond beats the shit out of Ben. You can be torn asunder, but you cannot tear the relationship asunder. And I think hurt Ben more than the plane crash actually did. More than uh, Sun did when she hit him with the oar. Okay. So thank you. I'm going to grab that transition and ride it from the past past to the past present, which is also in 2007. One plus two plus one plus two. Yes. One plus two plus one plus two. One plus two plus two plus one. <laughs> Surprise! Locke is alive, Ben. And Locke is basic. His basically his first words are, "I'm back, bitch." Yep. So Ben is obsessed with being judged by the smoke monster, which we'll get to. That's really what the entire episode is actually about. But before we get there, oh no, Caesar's gonna be a badass. Up. Oh. Caesar's dead. Caesar is 100% dead. What that character a red died herring. so fucking fast. Speaking of fish tacos, what a red herring. But let me ask you, is all of this Ben Locke sniping funny to you? Is this fun? Oh, yeah, it's great. Oh, it is? I love it. Okay. First of all, care. Locke's whole like attitude at this point is very much Jesus post-resurrection. Like It's very like nothing bad can happen to him now. Like He's just kind of like, I died. Things couldn't get worse than that. I like he has just this like beific attitude of just like right. wandering around. Like people point guns at him and he just greets it with a smile. Yeah. Like he knows he has a destiny. He came yeah. back from the fucking dead. It's not going to end like that. And on the one hand, I am so fucking mad that John Locke has been right from the very beginning that he is the main character. But at the same time, it's like, God damn it. Yeah. This attitude it's because he's the main character, isn't it? And Ben reacting to that is so fucking funny because Ben has no idea how to deal with this new John Locke okay. attitude. I have a question for you. If somebody 
were to punch Locke in his beatific face and kick his smug ass, who is the character you would want to be the one to do that? I'm not going to tell you if it does or who it does if it does, but oh, who would like you want it to be? any character, I yes. see. I don't know, because I'm kind of rooting for him now is the problem. Mm. This, uh, this is how the main characters get you every time. Fine. All right. Um, but if there was a character... Mm-hmm. Well, not Jack, because Jack and I are on the outs. Right. I think it's most likely Jack. Right. But who has Jack? You know what? Sawyer. Mm, yeah, I would oh, say Sawyer tight. because of yeah. all the characters still living and they're mm-hmm. still like in mm-hmm. the game. Sawyer's the one that Locke has wronged the most. I like that answer. And I feel like the fact that Locke has this newfound sense of destiny and peace and so on is built on the back of Sawyer's trauma. Yeah. And... I don't like that. Well, here's my question then, because you mentioned Jack. Would you like it if Locke kicked Jack's ass? Would you enjoy that? Yeah, I would. Okay. Unfortunately, in the equation of who I like best, Locke is now up. Oh, Jack is now thanks. down. Wow. And I am mad about it, but I can't seem to muster enough energy to like fight it. Okay. Narratively, the narrative is telling me to care about Locke. A quick, a quick mention for characters who are not being served well this season. Lapidus and Son and their journey together, and that's really all there is to say about that. Meanwhile, Ben and Locke and the Temple of Doom. Ben admits that all of this is penance for Alex, at which point a wild smoke monster appears. Appears as Alex. I really like this scene. And she says that Locke is the captain now. Locke is the chosen one. That's right. Suck it, Ben. Just like you once told somebody to suck it, you are now being told to suck. It. <laughs> that sounded really fucking dirty. Yeah, it did. So I, I liked this. I liked the idea that Ben is like, I have to go back to be judged. And here's my sin. And I, I understand that it was a sin. Jack, and Jack, we have to go back to the island. Ben, I have to go back to the temple on the island. I'm specialer. I'm, I'm more special than you. Jacob loves me. We're just having a fight. <laughs> I'll apologize. <laughs> And it'll all be okay, and I'll be in charge, and Locke can die again and stay dead. I don't like him. For someone... He took my special. He took my special shiny. For someone who is very good at ends justify the meanings of everything, right? Somebody who lies constantly, even to himself. This is a really rare moment of honesty where Ben is like, I know that I did the wrong thing. I fucked up. Like... And it, it very much has to do, I think, with the fact that he did genuinely love Alex in a fucking manipulative sort of way. But what I find more interesting is this idea that the island, through the smoke monster or whatever, clearly still has use for Ben. Because I think it would have fucking killed Ben if it didn't. It recognizes that Ben still has value. But I do think it's funny that Alex basically tells him, that smoke monster Alex, basically tells him... If you don't fucking follow Ben, I will fucking kill you. Basically. Like, your job is to hench for John. And I'm curious. I am curious if because of the reverence that Ben has for the island, if this is the final resolution of the conflict between them, if he now will be the Amos to John's Natalie, which you get now. The Amos to John's Naomi, which is a reference you get now from The Expanse, which you've watched two episodes of. Like, if he will finally follow John without question, if there, if this is the end of the mind games between the two of them. I don't know if it will be. I am curious. All right. 
So we've done the past past and we've done the past present. It is now time for the present past. So let's go all the way back to where we started, 1977, the year of the release of Star Wars. And I know two things. I know two things for certain. One, Phil is still the worst. Oh my God. And Please two, just die. And two, Kate needs to calm all the way down and be cool. Yeah, Kate immediately breaks like several rules of time travel. I mean, she has great hair, but that is not an It's like... <sighs> for like several transgressions. Look, One I'm or not, two, maybe. The great I'm hair not... will get you unlike Evangeline Lilly's current hair. Oh my God. Her hair in this episode can do. No wrong. Oh my God. Her no hair wrong. now looks awful. Uh, yeah. And, and you but really, her hair in this episode's good. I know. This, she, is really, this, this should is, always be her hair. This is the apex yeah. of her hair. I'm not saying that you have to be like apathetic like Jack, who's being a real turd right now, because Jack is treating it very fatalistically. Yeah, and you don't have to be Phil either. Right, yeah. Please, also, don't be Phil. Jack is being very fatalistic about the time travel. Like, Jack has accepted his fate, which was great. I'm glad he's no longer fighting his fate, but of course, he immediately jacks it up by being like, well, nothing I do matters then. Like, I'm just going to be here, and whatever the island wants, it'll just happen, which is dumb, too. He is he is the rust coal in this moment. Time is a flat circle. Yeah, I'm man. like I'm like you finally understood the thing, but then you immediately did the wrong thing with the understanding that you achieved. I really can't. You know that first season of True Detectives tough. I can't really tell you if that's what happens or not. I don't really know. Yeah, I don't think they do either. Yeah, I I think that's kind of the point. They don't know, but. Jack is being bit dumb, but here's the thing. Kate is doing the exact opposite of Jack, which is also dumb because she's like, well, I have agency and I can't stand by. And it's like, you could break time and space. I know you weren't there when the island was time hopping and everybody was getting nosebleeds, but they told you about it. And you know what? Like, don't break it again. You know Please don't. What are you doing? You know what's really funny? Think before you do stuff. You know what's really funny? What? I find it weird. Actually, I don't find it weird. It makes sense because Kate is a super problematic character who has not in the intervening years. And I'm maybe she wasn't really able to. I mean, I think that's part of the point about the Oceanic Six is being taken away from the island. Well, five of them being taken away from the island. They weren't really able to deal with shit. I mean, Desmond's the only one who's come out of this on the other side in any sort of like good way. He now he's still dealing with. He it. wasn't part of the Oceanic Six though, well, because nobody exactly. knew he was on the plane or he wasn't on the plane. Exactly. Yeah. So he's had a an ability to process things in a way that they didn't. So I'm not exactly blaming Kate for this up to a point. You're still ultimately in control of what you do, but it makes sense. But what I find interesting is that. Of all three sides of this love triangle, Juliet and Sawyer are fine. Juliet's like, I know what you're doing. It's not going to work. Whatever. And Sawyer has apparently evolved. I know. Like, can you believe how far we've come with this, this particular character? Here's the thing about Kate. I don't think Kate has grown at all. Jack got worse. Again, she hasn't. I mean, that's yeah, the thing. Like, Sawyer evolved. 
from the beginning, Jack devolved. Well, let me ask you about that. Did Jack really devolve or did we just see him for who he truly he, he is? He just gave up. He just revealed himself. Yeah, like he was trying to be a better person. No, I think that's no, what the Julie okay, Bowen. Okay. That's what I think the Julie I've Bowen of it. this show is meant no, to no, do. No, no, no. I've got it. Sawyer, inherently a good person. Yes. But self-destructive. Yes. He stopped self-destructing. Yes. Jack... Disguised his narcissism with altruism, right. like some kind of congress, Which no doctor has ever done before. Right. So he tr- tried to disguise how shitty he was mm-hmm. by being Dr. Savior Complex. But he's given up trying that to do that. So he's just... Dr. Savior Complex, shit. you're needed in OR4. <laughs> you're like, what is this, Grey's Anatomy? Stat. <laughs> no, he's he's given up. So he, he's just letting his shit all hang out. Yeah. Kate is a creature of instinct. Is and she chaotic she, neutral? Yes. But like, here's the thing. I don't think Kate is actually capable of any kind of self-understanding mm-hmm. or self-comprehension. I think she acts purely out of instinct. Yeah. And I think that that has not changed since the beginning. Well, I was... I don't think she even has tried to have any kind of measure of understanding of her context and like her situation. Right. It's just like, what's in front of me and what do I think is the best decision in that moment? Okay. That's what I'm doing. Well, if that's what's happening, I I think it's really interesting. I don't think I actually, I think they did a really good job of giving us all the information we needed about Jack. I am unsure about whether we actually know enough about Sawyer, but I do know they didn't do a good enough job with Kate. Because, and the reason I know this, is that before we recorded, I was I was listening to an interview with someone who was talking about how traumatic early life events are for you. You know, she was talking about, you know, going through divorce when you're younger you know, even through your 20s and just having an abandonment complex over it. But, you know, I don't know that a Team Darleton did a good enough job establishing. I mean, we know that Kate had that abusive presence and we know that she blowed him up, which, you know, I'm not mad about it. Well, but- there's also the who is her father and the person right. that she thought was her father wasn't her father. and The person she hated was her father. Right. right. I liked it better when it was Pearl Jam. I know. Anyway, I know. The point is. Or like, Sean Astin. Yeah. The, the, the point is like, I don't, I just don't know. It's like they showed us this, these things and they're like, so you understand that this is trauma, right? And I'm thinking, no, not everybody does. But here's the thing. If we're going to pair, I actually think that this is why Juliet is there. Because if we're going right. to pair Sawyer and Jack together as a double, mm-hmm. I think uh, you have to pair Kate and Juliet as a double. And here's the thing. We've seen Juliet's trauma. Yeah. Juliet as a person exists because of her trauma. She was forged in it. Right. Because the Juliet that went to the island is a very different Juliet than the who, one that exists post-island. Who isn't forged by their trauma? Right. Like, but here's in, the like, thing. In, no, no. In real life, who isn't forged by trauma? But here's the thing. Juliet does not act by instinct. She is able to understand who Mm -hmm. she is. She understands why she makes the actions that she she does. She understands why Jack and Sawyer both make the action, do the actions that they do, why they do what they do, which is why she's able to call Jack out on his shit. 
Kate cannot call Jack out on his shit because she does not have any sort of self-understanding. And there is a word that I'm trying to use here that I cannot remember. So, dear listeners, I am sorry for not Mm self-comprehension. She cannot comprehend herself. Mm -hmm. Okay. She she exists on instinct, not on super ego. Okay, but the way you're actually telling this, you have... I'm not saying you have the wrong set of doubles. You have another set of doubles. There's so many doubles in this show. Well, Juliet and Jack are both doctors who have had the means, motive, and opportunity to do self-comprehension and self-reflection. One chose to, one chose not to. Right. You have Sawyer and Kate who have had to lead the lives of of grifters, the the instability, Mm. being chased, not Having means, mode, opportunity, motive, opportunity to do that self-reflection. One did, the other didn't. I mean, that's that's another way to think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Although you can, uh, another, another parallel between Juliet and Kate is also abuse, right? And it's not just abuse on the island, it's abuse before the island. Because um, Juliet's ex-husband was abusive, the one that got hit by the bus. Remember yeah. that? That was great. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question before we move on and, and finish this episode out. Mm-hmm. Talking about Miles a little bit more. Yes. To quote Phoebe Bridgers. <laughs> I know the end. Yeah. But you don't. Do This is really your approach to storytelling or your favorite approach to stories being told. Do you think that characters... The big question is, do characters deserve good endings depending on whether they are quote-unquote good or not? But the more specific version of the question is, do Sawyer and Juliet deserve a good ending? Whether they're together or not, doesn't matter. I'm saying, do these two individuals deserve two good endings? And do Jack and Kate, based on where they are now, deserve not good endings or do they all deserve the potential of a good ending? Like what, where, where do you stand on this? So I think that that's a really complicated, knotted question. I do want to make the distinction Answer between 30 seconds, please. I do want to make the distinction between a good ending and a happy ending. Um, uh, and I said that on purpose. Yes, because I think that it's very moralistic to say this is a good person. So they deserve a happy ending. No. I do think good characters and by good characters, I don't mean morally good. I mean like, well-written characters, mm-hmm. I think they do deserve good, well-written endings, ah, even if they're not happy. Okay. Um, I so I want to make that distinction because I don't want... you're not... Because I'm asking it from an ethical point of view and you're thinking about it from a craft point well, of yeah, view. Yeah, from a storytelling perspective, great, a narrative perspective. Because I don't believe in morality play storytelling. I don't, I don't think that good people should necessarily always get happy endings and bad people should get bad endings right be like sure to check out my study of ethics in time travel stories deloreans phone booths and deloreans yeah on moviejohn.com so <laughs> of course i want juliet and sawyer to have a happy ending of course i want that i'm programmed to want that right but i don't i want them to have a satisfying ending i want them to have a good ending whether they're together or not because I think that the characters have had the time and the growth and the care that they deserve a satisfying ending. 
again, not necessarily a happy one. Of course, I want that for them. But you know what I mean? Like, it would be disappointing if they had a ending that betrayed all of that growth. Whereas Jack and Kate, at this point, like, well, that's not true. I'm still invested in Kate. I still want to know what happens to her. Jack, at this point, I feel like needs some kind of major intervention for his character to get back on any sort of track where I care about what happens to him. Oh, boy. Okay, I have in my notes, Cats in the Cradle, we already did that, but this is, of course, the punchline is that Pierre Chang is Miles' father, and what's really great Score about this- Score for Tessa! Yes, and what's really great about this is Hurley is super invested in, in this reconciliation. Like, his heart is really in the right place. Is it, though? I think so. So, it's funny. Two things. One, I mean, he's projecting because, of uh, as we, as we right. quoted back there in the open, he is really thinking about his own relationship with his dad, which we saw. But I don't know. I, I, I know we have different takes on this, but I feel like... I feel like his heart was in the right place. Okay, first of all, when I say score for Tessa, I want to say like w- like 147 for lost one for Tessa at this point. But getting beyond that, it's funny that you said like, here's your favorite approach to storytelling. And then we move to a topic that's like my least favorite approach to storytelling. So, you know, I have very strong opinions about when this happens in family narratives or family dramas, when somebody inevitably says, well, but I might never see my parent fill in the parent here again or fill in the sibling here or family relation or whatever. You have a chance to make up with your dad that you cannot you cannot entangle your own experiences with family with someone else's. And I think it is emotionally manipulative and frankly damaging when television or movies do this. OK, but counterpoint. Hurley is an intuitive person. Yes. It does not take an extremely intuitive person to realize once you have done the work to figure out that these two are father and son, you don't have to do a lot of work to be like, oh, Miles found a way, found where his father was, found a way to get himself all the way to a mysterious island just so he could meet his dad. This is a person who wants this to happen. Well, then why would he fucking say that? I will weaponize my story to make the thing that he wants to have happen. I'm just saying. I think that's giving the the writers too much credit. I think that this is a trope. Oh, it is a trope. I'm just saying it's actually being deployed in a way that makes sense. Bad trope. I don't think that they are... um, I don't think they're clever enough to deploy this trope oh, correctly. Oh, they aren't. I think they just get lucky that Hurley is such a good character yeah, I that just we are feel... willing to give him the benefit of a doubt. Except not you, though. I actually feel like this might be a betrayal of Hurley as a character. Oh. Because Hurley, in general, is very good at accepting people for who they are and what they want. Okay. Unless it's evil. He's very good at yeah. calling out evil when he sees it. I, I buy this. But I understand. I feel like it is very, it's so emotionally manipulative to 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 tell somebody, and wrong, frankly, it's wrong to tell somebody that they should have the same feelings about their family that you do, because not everybody is Cheech. Like, it, you know, it's just... No, you I'm, have Cheeches, and you definitely have Chong. And the other thing is, is that comparing, like, yes... They do have some similar backgrounds in the fact that Hurley's dad wasn't around. 
and he felt abandoned. And then he was able to repair his relationship with his father. And Miles' father wasn't around. But the difference is, is that, but Miles very astutely points out that there are differences in their situation. And those differences are real and they are significant. And ultimately, you cannot tell someone how to fix damage like that. Or right. that they should fix it in a certain way. Right. And that's why I really like, um, and this is spoilers for Jane the Virgin. I've always really liked that in Jane the Virgin, that ending scene where you're expecting the trope to happen, where Jane is expected to say something to Petra when her mother's, when her horrible mother is dying. You know, like, oh, well, you should make up. Like, mm-hmm. it's for you, not for her or whatever. But she doesn't. She says, no. Like, your mom was terrible and I can't tell you to feel any way like it's okay to be sad because you're sad, but like, I can't tell you like you should make up with her or that that's going to make you feel better. And I really like that they resisted that trope in that moment because sometimes families are just bad. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I think that I think that giving the writers too much credit is something we are very tempted to do on this show. I do it less than most people, but yeah, yeah you, you could be right. I mean, this show is, of course, obsessed with the idea of fathers and sons, so this could be shoehorning in one too many. Right. Well, the other thing, though, I mean, I would have bought it if Hurley had said, look, you clearly traveled through time to find your father. You're clearly right. obsessed with him because mm-hmm. of the way that you act around him. Do you think that maybe you're scared and that mm-hmm. you should just hang out with your dad. That would have been an appropriate thing to say. I don't think bringing your own family into it and saying, well, you should because family, blah, blah, blah. I think that that's cheap and it's easy and it's not the right move. Uh, Fair enough. Two more things that lead us to the end of these two episodes. And there are moments in this show that are iconic and there are moments that I love. And some of them are both, right? We have (laughs) not Penny's boat. Right. I mean, that is if that's not the most iconic thing on television, you're wrong. Second, (laughs) I've seen so many screenshots of that scene from the constant the last couple of days when because of The Last of Us, people have been like, what's another episode of television? And so many screenshots of Desmond on the other end of the phone during the constant. So there's that moment. I think one of the greatest emotional moments I had with Lost was when I realized we were flash forwarding before it, it was kind of my sixth sense moment. Spoilers for Sixth Sense if you haven't seen a movie that came out over two decades ago. I saw the first scene of the Sixth Sense and I'm like, he just died. He's dead. The kid sees dead people. That's what the end. I called my parents. Like, I paused in the opening credits. I called my parents and I said, is this the big twist? This movie is stupid. And so there's been a lot of M. Night Shyamalan lists lately and everybody puts... The Sixth Sense at the top. Not if you figure it out in the first scene, it's not. It's actually a really <laughs> shitty movie. That's funny. I don't I don't guess twists very often. Mm-hmm. The reason I bring that up is like that is the shining example of something I don't normally do. I figured this one out before I think most people did. I think people kind of clued in throughout the episode. But uh, along with that realization, my favorite scene is uh, Jack and his Jeep to uh, listening to Scentless Apprentice, which I think is just a great moment. So like I said, very iconic moments. Donkey Wheel, I think you know, is another one that I, yeah. I just really... Because that's a moment where the show just breaks open. 
you know, this is this is the first, you know, every show became a mystery box show. This was the show that really made that mystery box concept interesting. You know, it, it, Abrams had teal, uh, teased it out with Alias a bit, but this is where he goes full on for it. This is like in Glass Onion, you know, that when you get, they get that puzzle box and when it opens and there's just, you know, you're expecting to see. That's the whole thing about Glass Onion, though. There's, it's a, it's all like anticlimactic. None of it's, you know, you think it's, it's going to be elaborate, it's, but it's not. It's way simpler than it appears. Right. Yeah. This is the opposite of that. Yeah. The flash forward is the moment the box breaks open and you see that the mysteries are even deeper than you thought, which is why I find the last season to be such a betrayal. I have I I think I have prefaced this as much as it's due because one of the last iconic moments in this show for me that had me literally literally rolling on the floor laughing my ass off literally happened and you don't it's it's another moment I knew exactly what was happening you didn't I was grinning like an idiot at you the whole time cuz when I saw it the first time, I was like, he's writing Empire Strikes Back. He's writing Empire Strikes Back. He's writing Empire Strikes Back. Hurley went to 1977, realized that George Lucas was going to need a sequel, and was writing Empire Strikes Back. I just, the whole time, and then when it finally gets released, when he finally says what he's doing, it just, I howled. I howled with laughter. I have a couple of things. It's such a good... It's... Oh, my God. I Okay, first of all, I have a couple of things. One, Hurley needs a script writing class. Badly. Is he is he better or worse than so Christopher Moltisanti? The fact that he is transcribing a movie he's probably seen a dozen times and, like, he's doing such a poor job of it is terrible. some changes that needed to be made. The other thing, too... I think this would have been funnier if I had seen it when it came out because now, unfortunately, this joke is kind of ruined by the fact that every Star Wars fan wants to rewrite Star Wars. Why do you hate Joy Tessa? Uh, no, I'm just saying, why like, you, why? That, that I think do colors my Joy? own experience of this show. I joke. even brought Ryan Johnson up in this last however, little preface and you still did this. However, however, it is it is funny. Um, the other problem is, is that I love Empire Strikes Back. And so I'm like, how dare, how dare you try to write, rewrite Empire Strikes Back? And the Ewoks do not suck. Thank you very much, Hurley. Yeah. Why does Hurley hate Joy? I don't See, know. again, I think this is going against the character. I think. I, I mean, it's still a great moment. No, it that's is. I just I... wish that it was about like return instead okay. of about Empire. Uh, but that's my only point. The, okay. the joke still stands. It is very funny. And the funniest part is actually Miles' face when he realizes <laughs> what's going on. Because he's just like, Miles and Hurley are a great pair. Yes. Because Hurley wants desperately to be Miles' best friend. And Miles just like does not understand like Hurley at all. It's mm-hmm. very much like... um. I don't know. Like Hurley and Charlie had a very special relationship. Miles is just like... Who is this person? Why do they act in the ways that they what act? What have I done to deserve this? What have this? I done to deserve this? Like Hurley is incomprehensible as a person to Miles. But at the same time, he's being pulled in by Hurley's natural charm. Right. And so like it that is the funniest moment of the joke is is Miles stealing the notebook, reading it out loud, slowly realizing that he's reading Star Wars and then just this like 
utterly derpy, dumbfounded face of just like, what? Who is this person? And, and, and Hurley is so ashamed of it. And yet like so proud of it at the same time. Like it, it's really the character work, the concept itself, not as funny as it could have been, but the character work sells it. It sells it hard. And finally, the last thing we see in Some Like It Hoth is the cliffhanger. Professor Science Dude from the University of Michigan is Daniel Faraday. If the next episode isn't a Daniel episode, I will scream. I really want to know what's been going on with him. Like, really? Well, because well, he's I'm the just... fucking person who came up with the time travel stuff in mm-hmm. the first place. Mm-hmm. He's had years and years and years to develop his theory since he first discovered it was possible with Desmond. Why is he gone? How has he changed the past? Is he still trying to save Charlotte? How did he get a tenured faculty position at the University of Michigan? Is that what he's been doing this whole time? Well, Tessa, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because next time, we'll be talking about the episode, You've Had the Constant. Well, guess what? The next episode is The Variable. A.K.A. How to Get Tenure in Three Years. Gross. And follow the leader. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9, and you can find Tessa at The Buy Paradox. Until next time, as long as the dead guy says there's a reason, I guess everything's going to be just peachy.